Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm re-airing part of an interview I did with Michael Donald Edwards, producing artistic director of the Oslo Theater. In this part of the interview, Michael talks about the way he became the theater professional that he is. Michael's journey to becoming a theater professional is somewhat unusual, but then Michael is somewhat unusual. After that, I'm airing a discussion Michael and I had about the production of The Crucible, which he is directing for this season at the Oslo. Michael is articulate, iconoclastic, sometimes outrageous, always interesting. And so, so is this interview. Hang on. Here come the show. Hearing from an inner voice Finding choice where there's no choice With gentle prodding from the voice Oh, you really can show is about being the person you really are, not the person you think you have to be, not the person other people are, not the person somebody may have told you you had to be or even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. 
Unfortunately, too many people have experiences in their childhoods which discourage them from being something that they actually are. And because children are quite good at pretending that they are not this thing that is bringing a consequence they didn't want, they often get good enough at the pretense so that they come into adulthood without realizing that they have left something about themselves behind in denial for something important about themselves. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. I do this because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be the person you really are. And when you listen to Michael Donald Edwards, you know you are listening to a man who has always been able to know who he is and hold on to that. And as a result, we have a dedicated, passionate, screamingly honest man at the helm of the Oslo Theater. And I'm not going to tell you any more about Michael's journey because obviously he will do it better here now is Michael Donald Edwards. Okay, so I am with Michael Edwards, who is... Producing Artistic Director of Oslo Repertory Theater. Sarasota, Florida. It means uh, that I'm responsible. It's an extraordinary team of people who make this happen. But the final responsibility is really yes, yours. Yes, for the artistic product. Yes. Producing it and making the basic choices. It's kind of, it's a wonderful privilege and a responsibility to do it, to have a board of directors in a community and an institution trust one person's vision. And that's what they've given me. Yes. Amazing. Wow, it's a huge responsibility. And also as I I listen to you, I realize it is. It's a it's a great gift. It's an honor, isn't it's a, it? It really is an honor where and this is what happens with arts organizations where they say, actually we want a person to be the artistic head to actualize a vision. Now, a vision, of course, is a collective thing, but there has to be someone articulating it. What I'm trying to do with this series is interview people who make their living or their life with their art. Mm -hmm. And clearly you are doing that. I've been incredibly lucky. There's a group of us who talk about this, that we've been allowed somehow to live a life where we've only done our art. Yes. And that's a pretty marvelous thing. It's remarkable and um, rare mm -hmm. in our culture. Yes, yeah. So one of the things I always ask is, how did this happen to you? How did it find you? How did you find it? How did it begin? It's interesting, because I went to a Catholic boys' school that had absolutely no emphasis on art. Wow, how old? It was how all old? about sports. Mother through to high school, I graduated from it and then went to university. I got a great classical education, Latin and history and literature, but no experience of theater wow. or the arts at all, really, except Shakespeare. But we never saw any performances of Shakespeare. When I got to university at the age of 17, all that began to change as I got exposed to the world of art and literature and theater. I had wanted to be a priest. Then I wanted to be a teacher. There was always been this sense of mission and belief in a life beyond the mere survival. Yes. You know, that there was a world of spirit. And when I got to university and was studying philosophy and history and, and all, all this, began organized religion fell away, became untenable, you know, to actually subscribe to yes. this. But 
the world of the spirit and the yearning for all of that doesn't go away. When you reject organized religion, you still have a sense of wrestling with life's meaning and the fact that we all die and, you know, what does it mean? It's, it's, that's all, that doesn't go away. No. <laughs> just, you know, just when you say, I don't want anything more to do with the Vatican, doesn't mean you don't have a life of the spirit. Well, forgive me, and this is an interpretation of what you're saying, but that's limited and rigid. And so when you let go of the limits and the rigidity... That was certainly my experience. Mm -hmm. That was certainly my experience, that uh, I was brought up in a very conservative religious environment, which gave me a great deal. A a foundation. Yes, but it was also the great prison, intellectually and emotionally and artistically, that I had to break free of. This is a very, very conventional story. And many, many people go through this and, you know, have to let go... I was not brought up in a family or had an education that was artistically inclined. But they always encouraged me and they always supported me. Um, And it was at the university that I kind of got completely caught up in the world of theatre and knew probably by the age of 19 that this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to be involved in theatre. I did an honours degree in English literature, I wanted to be an academic for a while. But really, it was the theatre that drew me in. And uh, my first job was a follow spot I read for the Australian Opera. Wow. And that triggered my interest in opera, which I did two years teaching at a college and got grants to go to England. And it all kept guiding me towards the theatre, and I eventually got a, go to, I did a graduate degree at UCLA. And it's never not been part of what I've done. It was yeah, it sounds like, a, like you got on this track and it took you. Yeah, and it never had to really choose. Do I go down this road or not? I was already going down the road. And when I think about it, it was a road that the seeds were being planted very young. I mean, I was interested in in, uh, movies a great deal. I, I loved music. I was always listening to music. And I was always playing games, theater games. My sisters tell me that I used to play mass all the time. And I was the priest, and I made all my sisters be the altar boys. And we'd, 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 it's, they, they still remember me doing this sort of thing, as well as cowboys and Indians. Yes. So you were always play-acting in one way or another. I was always doing games. The, that element, when I think about it, was there, and I dressed them up. And it's like there's an element of playing a game. Yes. Uh, which is why we call them plays. Yes. Kids playing games using their imaginations, they, they get transported, they get lost in the game. And I think that that is what we try to do in the theatre all the time. Get the audience to that place where they're getting lost in the game, and the actors get lost in the game. We need it, we want to get transported by stories, and I've always loved stories. Yes. And it used to be I loved the story of the mass and the story of all of that. Still a fascinating story, but not the burden. The dogma. You know, cannot be born. It stifles a life of true spirit, for me. Yes, and I mean, I just keep thinking of the word expansion when I'm watching, you know, you just kept expanding. Kept expanding. I feel that even though uh, I don't subscribe to any organized religion, I'm part of the tradition of art makers who connect to the life of the spirit. I started out by saying I got into this conservative boys' school and for my whole, you know, until I got out of high school, I didn't have any contact with that. But then you speak about those early days when you were play acting, and it's, uh, it sounds like it, it was, was there. always there for you. It was always there, and when I think about it, I mean, I, at the boys' school, we had theology and Christian doctrine every day. Oof. 
but it was normal. Mm-hmm. It was not, but it was, it, what was happening in that is that I was exp- being exposed to St. Augustine and profound thinkers and, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas and, you know, as well as, you know, the, the Bible and religion. It was a great tradition of profound examination of why we're here and what the stories mean. But the Bible and, and, and all of that was never presented as literal to me in my education. It was always presented as there was a poetic dimension. It was a metaphoric dimension. It was like you had to figure out. So I think I was given a mindset through that religious education of looking at these stories as parables. Genesis was never literal to us. The world wasn't literally created in, in seven days. It's kind of baffling. People take all that literally. The priests and nuns never taught us it was literal. Really? No. No, I don't. that's not how we were taught it. Are you sure that you just didn't take it that way? Maybe that, but I don't remember. That's not my memory of my. I believe you, but it's very hard for me to think. It's really too bad we can't call up some of the boys who went to school. Well, Karen Armstrong says this notion of of being taking the Bible literally is very recent. For seventeen hundred years of people living with the Bible, it never occurred to people that it was absolutely literal. It's a poetic document that must, you must find at every point, the whole challenge of reading the Bible is to find love. Whatever the story is, you have to find love. That's your job. Okay, now, <laughs> it's really but, but, and I agree with you, but, but I... That's not what's happened to it. No, and I would be really surprised to hear that a school in the 20th century was teaching that. I mean, that's really... Well, I think I, I, I probably had an, an eccentric bunch. Either that. Now, there were some. Uh, the Redemptress Fathers who used to come once every six weeks to do a retreat. They were obsessed with hell, I remember <laughs> that. That was their big thing. Uh, but not the Jesuits and not the Christian Brothers and the Sisters of Mercy. They were not obsessed by hell, but the Redemptress Fathers were. And we all knew that. Yes. You so know. you sort of discounted them? Well, no, they used to scare the hell out of a lot of oh. us. They used to get people, they used to get some kids really scared, but a lot of people just rolled their eyes. This is at the age of 15. Yeah. We already knew this was perverse, somehow, to, to, to dwell on that. We were getting a real education. Yeah, but, but, but we rebellion, think. rebellion at that, at, at 15 and absolutely. 16 is kind of, you know, it's really age Absol- appropriate. Absolutely, so, absolutely. You know. I, don't, I don't know how we ended up talking about religion. Well, it's the, it's the underpinnings in a really important way, not religion, but that whole idea of the, um, the metaphorical nature of the religious stories, the philosophy, the story aspect, really seems to be what captured you. Oh, absolutely. I, I loved all those stories. Yeah. You know, I remember being very disturbed by the story of Abraham and Isaac, that God asked him to take his son up to the top of the mountain yes. and sacrifice him. And I remember being very young thinking, I don't like this God. What kind of God would ask a father to do that? How is that a test of love? That father should be arrested and thrown into jail. (laughs) You know, I mean, any father that said, God told me to kill my son, we would put in prison. I had real trouble this at a very young age with the story of Abraham and Isaac. I can remember challenging a teacher with that story and arguing and trying to get it around to... I used to use the confessional as a place of arguing with the priests, too. I can remember going to a confession and arguing with the priests. Michael, I'm sorry. I think you were an anomaly. (laughs) I'm probably the most technically irreligious of all of my friends and family 
but they all say I'm the most obsessed with it, that I talk about it more, I'm interested, I examine it, I yes. examine it more. Yes, it, It's clearly a profound influence for you. Yeah. Yes. But I am not, I just, I reject yeah, I, I know. the rigid, dogmatic, institutional thinking of the church, really, and I'd love to go, with, from the Pope on, I would love to meet them toe-to-toe -to -toe and argue every single point. And I would and love I to have would, you I, do I, it, I, I'll well, tell you I the totally, truth. I totally would. <laughs> Karen Armstrong is my girl, I love her. I do too. Hasn't she evolved to Eastern religions? Well, she calls it the golden rule, and she says all the great religions have this in common. Treat other people the way you would, you like, would like to, to be, be treated, treated yourself. Right. It's at the core of every religion. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, uh, Buddhism, Buddhism, they all, at the core, have the golden rule. It is the single hardest thing for all religious people to do. And they become committed to all the wrong things right. about religion. Right. And the last thing they are willing to do right. is to love their enemies. Yes, yes. To treat other people as they would like to, to be, be treated. treated. And it's the only important thing religion has to offer. God, that's so lovely. That's, that's, that is, that is the most important thing for all religions to teach their children, to teach everybody. Don't treat anyone the way you don't want to be treated. And that's where she is now. Yeah. yeah. She's at that, if it's not informed by the golden rule, it isn't truly religious. Yes. So she, it's like, it's, it's very disarming. And none of the dietary laws... None of the moral strictures, none of those have any meaning if it doesn't come down to that. And you can justify it all you like. It's the hardest single thing for a truly religious person to do. Yes. It's well, actually, a, a person who is in a particular religious... Uh, is, yes, who subscribes to, to an orthodox religion. Yes. It is the hardest thing for them to do. Yes, and it's why people are killing each other yes. all over the place. They have no problem doing that. No. Amazing. Religion is, be, well, it's a profound perversion of religion that is used as an instrument of hate. Yes. But that's, yes. It is in it, that's its inevitable journey. It's sort of in the service of a tiny ego. In order to feel okay about myself, I have to feel better than you, and if I feel better than you, then I don't mind treating you badly. And if you, if you subscribe to a religion that basically says, this is the absolute truth, this is right, and anyone who doesn't subscribe to this is the other, then... But very quickly, you don't have to respect no. humanity, and you can easily eradicate them. Yes. The Bible is full of those stories. And that, and that Bible has like gotten into our DNA. It's satanic. The Bible is filled with much more violence than the Koran. The Bible is filled with horror. And the hatred of the female. Well, I mean, the, 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 the hatred and fear of female, female sexuality, that it must be contained in all the great religions. They all have that in common. We're so dangerous. Oh. Talk to me about the crucible. The crucible? There's a show I love. I did it, I think, four or five years ago at Indiana Rep. I was hesitant to do it, a big classical play, and I was worried that it no longer spoke to our world, that it was so specifically not necessarily about Puritan Massachusetts, but about 1950s McCarthy. The whole idea of the state choosing to demonize people who think the wrong way and who, who are then disgraced, terrorized, in the case of the witches, burnt at the stake, but in case of McCarthyism, deprived of their jobs and futures and livelihoods, to told that they were not really American. Right, and and you thought that might be obsolete. I was <laughs> yes. I and it turns out, well, Arthur Millet <laughs> said it himself. He was surprised to discover that whenever the play is done, it's contemporary. Yeah, it seems to speak to whatever period 
and it's one of the most popular American plays of the 20th century. It's been performed all over the world in every language, and wherever it's done, people think it's about them yeah. and their society, which is a fascinating thing. And also it, a terrible judgment on our inability to get past that. Well, because he taps into something fundamental about human nature, mm -hmm. that we all need to live in community. Otherwise, we're going to be on isolated hermit farms and, and never speak to anyone but our own families. Some people live like that. But the decision to live in community has meant the evolution of culture, has meant the evolution of so much that we hold dear. So how we actually continue to live in community means you have to actually be a neighbour. You have to actually accept people who don't think exactly the way you do, who don't look exactly the way you do, and find a way to create a community. In the play, Miller calls it charity, that we have this sense of mutual respect and understanding for each other, even if we don't necessarily agree on everything. When the play opens, charity is in real trouble in Salem, Massachusetts. It's, there's huge fights and squabbles about who owns the land, where the borders are, who, what is the right way to worship. I mean, is it, there, there are, the community is immensely divided, which creates this fertile ground for this awful tragedy to happen, come out of you know, repressed sexuality and a theocratic state. It creates this perfect little crucible of chemical reaction and without one any one of those elements it wouldn't work if you don't have sexual repression you don't have the level of political nightmare that you have if you don't have a political nightmare then the sexual um, oppression doesn't matter quite so much but altogether is explosive and then the the idea of demonizing other people because they don't think the way you do or don't share your values. There always seems to have to be a demon of some kind in order to justify rigid thinking. Well, and the critical thing that Miller responded to, he was living at a time where the state itself seemed to buy into this absurd idea that you could be rejected as a member of the community if you didn't think the right way. Yes. And that was communism. Right. If you thought communist ideas, you couldn't be an American. And that thinking is still with us and yeah. we know there are people who would like to make our country sort of like that again yes and in some ways it is but in profound and unchangeable ways it's not and i like to think that the play shows us a world it demonstrates a vivid painful and kind of thrillingly intelligent world where charity is broken and we see why that has happened. There aren't really any truly wicked people. There is only the idea that you can oppress people for incorrect thinking. And I like to think that people will leave the play thinking, we don't have to do that. We can, I know what it is to live in a world with real charity, with real acceptance of each other. Because we all know Almost everybody I know, regardless of where they are on the political spectrum, wants a world that is at its core a world of charity. Yeah. This has nothing to do with being right or left or, you know, or atheist or Christian or Muslim or Jew. Charity is human yes. and basic empathy for the other person. And the crucible insists on showing us 
really kind of in a, a very laser beam way, this is what happens when, because you're obsessed with a property line or because you're obsessed with a particular way of worshipping or a particular way of dressing or that women must have a particular role compared to men, if that becomes a thing that you're willing to actually go to the mat for, it can lead to the breaking of charity. We have to accept that men and women are equal. <laughs> that all we have to we have to finally we have to finally accept that and that a brilliant intelligent woman who is in a position of power can no longer be called a witch without without consequences that we that we have to we have to embrace that the american project is truly about everyone having some kind of a place at the table. This is a difficult thing for a lot of people to accept. No kidding. It was difficult in Puritan Massachusetts. It's difficult in every country in the world. But we have a better shot than most in it, America. It, what, it, what it makes me think of is that there's a higher value than whatever it is I think is important. Yes, which yes. is dangerous. Oh, a higher value. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah, there yes. is a, that we have to allow. Right. I may think that this is essential, this is important, but there's a higher value than what I think or what I want, and it is that there's a place at the table for everyone. Yes, which can be a, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> and, but it is, it is the essential truth. And if actually you speak to people individually, they know it's true. Yeah. yeah. They and, know until it's true. Until the thing that matters to them seems to be threatened. Yes. And then they can throw that out. Everyone loves the Christmas story until they realize it's actually about immigrants. Yes, right. Mary and Joseph were immigrants. Yes, right. You know. And they had to sleep in a manger and they, right? Jesus was born out of wedlock. That's right. right. In a stable. Right. Because there was nowhere else for them to stay. Nobody would have them. That story is being reenacted right now around the world by millions of people. That's right. And that is the true story. And you know, and we, I was taught this as a kid. I always knew that was the story. But it's only meaningful if you allow yourself to live it. Yes. It's, it's, the Christmas story is happening every single day. And there are opportunities for true, true charity every single day. And this play really shows us what can happen when you actually break that. Yes. That impulse. Yes. I think that's a great place to stop. Yes, I really do. Yes, I do. I do. Have I said too much? No. Oh. There's nothing more I can think of to say to you. Yeah. What's that from? Uh, yeah. But it isn't true of you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. Thanks, Lynn. It was great. It was great. When you listen to Michael, it is my hope that you are asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Am I certain that I am living the life I was meant to live? Well, of course, if you are, then I'm very happy for you. But if you aren't, the message of The Lynn Show is it may not be too late to recapture what you may have had to leave behind in order to get through your childhood. As always, I hope you got something from this show. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you see my face and figure.
sight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night Some goddamn boomerang No, I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang You see that I have had my shot My time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on I won't be relegated or leave without a fight, no. I will not go gentle into that good night. I won't go with a whimper. I am going with a bang. Life's a bell I keep on ringing, not a chime. Got some tang, so you won't hear me simper. I may have gotten. 